And you're listening to Unusual Sources here on 93.3 CFMU-FM. That's 93.3 on the FM dial, but we're also at CFMU.ca, which streams all the way uh, to the other side of the world on your phone, on your tablet, on your PC, whatever the case may be. Anyway, uh, today we're going to be interviewing Gregory Elich, And, of course, he's going to be talking about some very relevant issues right now with regard to North Korea, uh, nuclear weapons, international law, and so on. Now, Gregory E. Leach is on the board of directors of the Yasenovats Research Institute and the advisory board of the Korea Policy Institute. He is a member of the Solidarity Committee for Democracy and Peace in Korea, a columnist for Voice of the People, and one of the co-authors of Killing Democracy, CIA and Pentagon Operations in the Post-Soviet Period, published in the Russian language. He is also a member of the Task Force to Stop Fad in Korea and Militarism in Asia and the Pacific. His website is gregoryelich.org. So, uh, Gregory, thanks very much for being with us on the program today. Yes, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate that. Well, you know, your articles do pop up in Counterpunch and other places, and uh, we do read them over here um, in the anti-war movement. And um, I think uh, you've really touched upon some issues that are circulating in the news right now that people might have questions about. Um, and, and that especially concerns North Korea or the DPRK and what's being said about its nuclear program. Uh, and it relates to broader questions in the peace movement or the anti-war movement and problems that countries around the world face, you know, because there's a lot of activists that are trying to create a nuclear weapons-free world. Uh, but it seems things are moving in the opposite direction. And, you know, it seems to me and other people looking at the situation that the actions of the United States in particular have been encouraging nuclear proliferation in the sense that protection from attack is increasingly guaranteed by uh, nuclear weapons. And I saw mention of that in your article as well, and I thought it provided a very important context for the situation we're facing now because you referred to the examples of Iraq and Libya, and I'm wondering if you can tell us how those examples might have affected the way that the DPRK is approaching the situation. Uh, yes, actually, uh, both countries had uh, nascent nuclear weapons programs, which they uh, abandoned uh, in favor of uh, U.S. demands. But actually, I might put this even in broader context, because if you look at, uh, say, the past 30 or 40 years, all the various countries the U.S. has uh, invaded or bombed is in the dozens, and the countries that it's overthrown through proxy uh, armies and so forth. It's obvious that a small country that's uh, targeted by U.S. hostility has no chance of warding off attack if all it has to rely upon are, nu are conventional weapons. Uh, so I think that actually was what prompted Iraq and Libya to start to develop their programs. Uh, and you can see what happened to uh, those, both of those countries. So uh, obviously Iraq, we know what happened there. In Libya, uh, they abandoned their program. Uh, under, um, under one U.S. administration, only be bombed by the next. So a you know, promise is, is only as good as the, uh, is the term of one administration, apparently. And uh, Muammar Gaddafi was paid for his cooperation with the U.S. by being uh, beaten, impaled on a bayonet, and shot several times. There's a lesson for the North Koreans there, all right, and they certainly have uh, taken note of it. Well, I, you know, it reminds me of something that uh, Stephen Gowans had written recently uh, about what are called weapons of mass destruction. And, of course, not everything is a WMD 
chemical artillery shells are not weapons of mass destruction. And the United States, when they were threatening to invade and uh, attack and remove the government in Iraq, which they then did, you know, they knew, of course, that Iraq did not have weapons of mass destruction. They knew it did not have nuclear weapons that could cause significant problems for the United States if they attacked Iraq. Um, and of course, as you pointed out, Libya made an arrangement with the United States. Uh, it was under the idea that if they gave up nuclear weapons programs or WMD programs, that they would be treated better. And of course, uh, we saw what happened. And so, you know, it seems at the end of the Cold War, there was supposed to be this era of peace and prosperity, at least according to these free market ideologues. But uh, instead, it's been an era of the U.S. invading you unless you have nuclear weapons. Uh, yeah, I, the, obviously, the Soviet Union was a counterbalance to U.S. power and definitely limited the amount of damage they did, although, of course, the U.S. still intervened in you know, Vietnam and Angola and Mozambique and so many other places. But uh, as now, though, there's, there's really no counterbalancing force to, this, to the same extent, so the U.S. has really gone wild on its militarism. Well, it just, you know, it, it gets to the specific issue of the DPRK itself, of North Korea, uh, because people that write about the situation always mention, of course, that it has been continually at war with the United States since the Korean War. It is at war with a much larger country, a superpower, the superpower, uh, dominant around the world. And, you know, in order to preserve any sense of independence or sovereignty or self-preservation, they have been developing various weapons, missiles, and so on. And there have been mentions of uh, tests in the newspaper or, or in the media recently. You write about that. What kind of missiles or projectiles has the DPRK been testing? Well, since Trump took office at the beginning of the year, the North Korea has rapidly uh, accelerated its missile development program. So uh, earlier this year, they uh, fired off a Pukuk Song 2 medium-range ballistic missile. And what made this special in the North Korean military uh, arsenal is that this is their first missile, land-based missile, that um, uh, has solid fuel, which means that it can be fired within three, three or four minutes, rather than its other land-based missiles, which are liquid-fueled and take 30 to 60 minutes to to prepare before firing, or, uh, during which time they're sitting ducks for U.S. Tar uh, military planes. You know, I recall reading in your article, by the way, for those uh, just tuning in, I should mention, of course, we are speaking with Gregory E. Leach, and he um, has written an article for Counterpunch July 7, which is called North Korea's Fast Track Missile Development, how far it's come, and why it has the U.S. on edge. And, of course, this is the article I'm referring to, and you, you, you um, investigated the types of missiles. It's, it's interesting because um, right now it's, I wouldn't say that they have a large uh, stockpile um, of any sort of long-range weapons, or uh, they have not successfully tested long-range missiles with um, uh, re-entry vehicles that have been proven to work. So, it, you know, it doesn't sound at this time as if they're even capable of launching one or especially more than one missile uh, at the, for example, the United States mainland. Uh, no, of course, all of these, they've also uh, tested the uh, intermediate missile and, uh, and the Hwasong-14 missile, which there's some debate over whether that's an ICBM or intermediate-range missile. But anyway, this is, these are all initial tests. And to have an operationally effective missile, you need maybe a dozen or two dozen tests at a minimum. It's a very complex process, especially the reentry vehicle, which has to withstand enormous uh, temperatures as it, as it passes back through the uh, atmosphere. Uh, 
especially on an ICBM, because due to the speed of an ICBM, the uh, temperatures are particularly uh, intense, so up to 7,000 degrees Celsius. And uh, uh, there's no indication whatsoever that the North Korea even tested the reentry vehicle on the Swasong 14 uh, supposed ICBM. Although they did test the reentry vehicle on, on, on their intermediate missiles they fired earlier this year. But that, again, that's a much shorter range, so it's not really relevant to the ICBM. Hmm. And uh, if you take the case of the United States, it took several years before they mastered the uh, ability to create a reentry vehicle that could survive passing back through the atmosphere. Well, I'd say that uh, North Korea is at least a few years away, probably more, before it has an operational ICBM capability. Yeah, it's a long ladder that they're trying to climb. And certainly there's a lot of tests that they have to go through and whatnot. But, you know, there's all this hysteria over it in the U.S.-dominated media. And, you know, it seems, and you've been arguing, that the United States is singling out uh, the DPRK for its missile tests, making, you know, a lot of noise about this and fear-mongering. But I understand there's actually no legal basis to criticize or complain about the missile test that it's conducting. No, under international law, there's absolutely no prescription against testing a ballistic missile whatsoever. Uh, the only uh, prohibition in North Korea's case is the U.N. Uh, sanctions that the United States used as muscle to push through the Security Council uh, to get the sanctions against North Korea prohibiting us from firing ballistic missiles. But that's just an expression of, uh, of American power. It's not, there's no legal basis for, for that whatsoever. And it's interesting to know, contrast uh, the U.S. reaction to North Korea's missile tests with uh, the tests that India and Pakistan conducted earlier this year, which uh, drew no reaction whatsoever from the U.S. In fact, the United States, for its part, uh, this year has launched a Trident ICBM and a Minuteman tried, uh, ICBM. So it's condemning North Korea for doing what it was doing. Yes, I've read about various missile launches by various countries in the news. Um, in the case of nuclear proliferation or non-proliferation, North Korea has been criticized on those grounds. But of course, <laughs> you know that's by the United States, which is sitting on some 7,000 nuclear warheads. That that very non-proliferation agreement is supposed to involve the reduction and elimination of nuclear warheads, which is yeah. not happening. And uh, you know, and they're supposed to do something about them proliferating to India and Pakistan and Israel and so on. Of course, nothing has been done whatsoever. So it's, it's very focused and centric uh, on North Korea. And you point out it's, this is representative of the United States' ability to influence the United Nations and, and make it point fingers or focus on a country to the exclusion of other countries. I think ultimately you're arguing in the context of these U.S. wars, and this really has to be pointed out because who invaded Iraq Afghanistan, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, Yugoslavia, you know, in the last 20 years. It wasn't North Korea, it was the United States. But now, of course, they have not yet invaded the DPRK, although all sorts of maneuvers are occurring near its borders. So you're saying that the, the United States doesn't want a country to be able to defend itself. So if North Korea has nuclear weapons, that upsets the strategic calculus of the U.S. in that region because now they have a country that could theoretically pose a problem to U.S. forces in that region. Yeah, it's interesting how the United States uh, paints North Korea as a uh, threat to peace. Well, look at since 1953, 
North Korea has never been at war. The United States has invaded and bombed innumerable countries since then. And you mentioned some of the examples. So you, you have to question, well, exactly who is the threat to peace? It's, certainly it doesn't seem to be North Korea. And the United States is conducting in very large war games on a regular basis just outside, just outside the North Korean border with South Korea. You know, the last one was over 300,000 uh, troops, and they had a massive armada of ships and airplanes. And they just recently sent uh, two B-1 bombers practicing uh, carpet bombing in North Korea. So these, you can imagine the reaction, say, if uh, Russia was conducting war games with uh, Cuba, practicing the invasion and bombing of the United States. The reaction would be hysterical. But uh, when the United States does that to North Korea, it's uh, just seemed as business as usual, perfectly uh, fine, nothing for North Korea to complain about. And these are even more provocative in that uh, the war games now include what the U.S. calls decapitation strikes, where they have commando units that practice the uh, assassination of North Korean leaders. This is very provocative and, uh, provo- and, uh, and aggressive. I don't think this is emphasized enough because, you know, I, I, you pointed out what's involved in those exercises. So, if you can imagine Russia or China conducting military exercises in Cuba or Mexico that are directed against the United States, imagine if they had, yeah, hundreds of thousands of soldiers, they had ships, aircraft carriers, submarines, they had strategic bombers that can carry nuclear weapons, all of these things, and they say, oh, it's just maneuvers that we conduct every year, and now it's going to involve the assassination of the U.S. president. So we're going to have our soldiers and aircraft on the U.S. border practicing for the assassination of the U.S. president and the decapitation, uh, that's the word they use, of of the U.S. leadership. I mean, if that were the case and something like that were happening, especially on a regular basis, but at any time, the the reaction would be absolutely hysterical. And every news broadcast, TV show, whatnot, would focus on uh, how offended they are by that situation. Uh, Yeah, well, you can see the hysteria just in the news today with... uh, um Trump's son talking to a Russian lawyer. So, you know, <laughs> yes, well, that's a, that, I'm glad you mentioned Trump because, of course, his bellicose statements with regard to the DPRK and China seem to have accelerated what the DPRK is doing. I mean, this also has to be seen in the context of the arms race that's happening in Southeast Asia. Um, the Obama administration had previously announced its commitment to um, what was the word they used? Pivot, pivot to Asia. Uh, which means pivoting the armed forces of the U.S. or the center of gravity of U.S. armed forces over to encircle China. I mean, they were pretty open about that being the objective. Um, and Trump, uh, has, you know, in line with that, has made a number of um, aggressive statements or bellicose statements. So both China and the DPRK are increasingly rattled. Um, and uh, so this all seems to be a predictable consequence of the sort of open and deliberate U.S. actions. Yeah, and uh, just recently the U.S. has been sailing uh, uh, warships within Chinese uh, territorial waters in the South China Sea. So the, the, uh, the U.S. definitely wants to make send a message to China that can, uh, it can uh, dominate this uh, trade route that China depends upon. And, of course, there was a recent sale of arms to Taiwan. Uh, and the U.S. also is uh, recently uh, talking about applying what's called secondary sanctions on China, against any business that does normal trade with North Korea. So a business that does a regular trade with uh, North Korea uh, 
involving goods that are not under U.N. sanctions, in other words, there's no legal prohibition on the trade, would still be hit with U.S. sanctions just by doing business with uh, North Korea. Uh, and uh, U.S. officials are discussing in the United Nations Security Council the possibility of uh, imposing a total oil embargo on North Korea, which would bring about the basic uh, shutdown of its entire economy. The fact that it is utilizing international sanctions in this fashion, strong-arming the United Nations in this fashion, dominating the discussion on the DPRK in this manner, just shows how much influence the United States exerts and how much it's able to dominate the discussion in its favor. Because otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about sanctioning North Korea or you know screaming about missile tests because people wouldn't care very much. It would uh, just be doing the same thing that many other countries are doing. But alas, we're all forced to be worried about a few ICBMs that North Korea is slowly developing, which is probably one of the reasons why there still is a North Korea and that hasn't gone the way of, uh, say, Libya. Yeah, I think that's actually the uh, at the heart of the U.S. Uh, complaint about North Korea, although they don't phrase it that way. But uh, it's, the, it's not a threat to the U.S. mainland because North Korea has no capability of hitting the U.S. mainland. And even if it did, it would have no more than, say, five or ten nuclear weapons, with, as opposed to the U.S.'s nearly 7,000, so it would be suicidal for the North Korea to launch an attack. The North Korean nuclear program is, is intended purely as a deterrent against U.S. attacks. So the U.S. fear is that if North Korea develops its missile program sufficiently to the point where it could at least hit the U.S. strategic bomber forces in Guam, for instance, that uh, the U.S. would no longer have the option of being able to attack North Korea. And other small nations in the future who would be targeted by the United States would obviously learn from that uh, pattern and choose to develop their own nuclear programs in order to ward off attacks on the United States. Well, I mean, in the world that we live in today, it seems like the only option. That is the world that U.S. unilateralism is creating. You know, in the sense of the United States being what they call themselves uh, an exceptional nation or the exceptional nation, that is the consequence of that. Because when you anoint yourself as the exceptional nation and say that you can go and ignore all the laws and all the conventions and intervene in someone else's affairs in Yugoslavia, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Libya, in Yemen, in Somalia, and so on, um, you destabilize whole regions, you wipe out governments, and the survivors, anyone who's still there, is looking for ways to defend themselves. So, you know, this situation of unilateralism and exceptionalism is leading to nuclear proliferation and leading for states to take extreme measures to protect themselves, essentially. Uh, I, I mean, I think that probably argues for a return to what we're supposed to have in terms of international law, non-interference and non-aggression, in which these these laws are respected, borders are not transgressed with military force. Uh, there was probably um, less incentive for rapid nuclear proliferation at that time. But I know you're keeping an eye on the issue, uh, so that's very interesting to watch. Uh, we can find you in Counterpunch, and uh, we can find your books, uh, such as... Uh, the one you helped co-author there, Killing Democracy, CIA, and Pentagon Operations in the Post-Soviet Period, although that's in the Russian language. So uh, where can people look to get your articles and books that are upcoming? 
Uh, well, I'm currently doing research for a book on the Yugoslav Wars, which will highlight the uh, role of U.S. intervention. And I actually have quite a bit of material that I gathered from Yugoslavia uh, during a visit there and uh, subsequently. But uh, that's that's probably a few years off. So right now I don't have, other than that book in the Russian language, I don't have anything currently available. But as far as my articles go, uh, it's probably best place, since I publish in a variety of locations, uh, best place to probably be go to my website, which is uh, gregoryelich.org, because it has links to all, all of my articles, so people can find them there. Well, that sounds pretty good. Uh, that way, if uh, it doesn't come up on CounterPunch or something, we can just go there ourselves. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Greg. We really appreciate this. Yeah, thank you, Brendan.